Welcome to the 453rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome actress and filmmaker Krista Rowe to talk about her new film, Promise House, Heather's Story. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter, and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest, although please don't wait long. We'll be wrapping up the regular COVID Calls and transitioning the project to a different kind of project after March 16th. So please get in touch with me before then. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, as of March 7th, 2022, 37,027 people have died from COVID-19 in Canada. In the United States, 958,621 people have died from COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, A Rising Death Toll, Overdoses Are Increasing at a Troubling Rate. This was written by German Lopez, published February 13th, 2022, and appeared in the New York Times. Drug overdoses now kill more than 100,000 Americans a year, more than vehicle crash and gun deaths combined. Sean Blake was among those who died. He overdosed at age 27 in Vermont from a mix of alcohol and fentanyl, a synthetic opioid. He had struggled to find effective treatment for his addiction and other potential mental health problems repeatedly relapsing. I do love being sober, Blake wrote in 2014, three years before his death. It's life that gets in the way, he wrote. Blake's struggles reflect the combination of problems that have allowed the overdose crisis to fester. First, the supply of opioids surged. Second, Americans have insufficient access to treatment and other programs that can ease the worst damage of drugs. Experts have a concise, if crude way to summarize this. If it's easier to get high than to get treatment, people who are addicted will get high. The U.S. has effectively made it easy to get high and hard to get help. No other advanced nation is dealing with a comparable drug crisis, and over the past two years, it has worsened. Annual overdose deaths spiked 50% as fentanyl spread in illegal markets. More people turned to drugs during the pandemic and treatment facilities and other services shut down. In the 1990s, drug companies promoted opioid painkillers as a solution to a problem that remains today, a need for better pain treatment. Purdue Pharma led the charge with OxyContin, claiming it was more effective and less addictive than it was. Doctors bought into the hype, and they started to more loosely prescribe opioids. Some even operated pill mills, so-called, trading prescriptions for cash. A growing number of people started to misuse the drugs, crushing or dissolving the pills to inhale or inject them. Many shared, stole, and sold opioids more widely. Policymakers and drug companies were slow to react. It wasn't until 2010 that Purdue introduced a new formulation that made its pills harder to misuse. The CDC didn't publish guidelines calling for tighter prescribing practices until two decades after OxyContin hit the market. In the meantime, the crisis deepened. 
opioid users moved on to more potent drugs, namely heroin. Some were seeking a stronger high, while others were cut off from painkillers and looking for a replacement. Traffickers met that demand by flooding the U.S. with heroin. Then in the 2010s, they started to transition to fentanyl, mixing it into heroin and other drugs or selling it on its own. Drug cartels can more discreetly produce fentanyl in a lab than heroin derived from large open poppy fields. Fentanyl is also more potent than heroin, so traffickers can smuggle less to sell the same high. Because of its potency, fentanyl is also more likely to cause an overdose. Since it began to proliferate in the United States, yearly overdose deaths have more than doubled. No one has a good answer for how to halt the spread of fentanyl. Synthetic drugs in general remain a major unsolved question, not just in the current opioid epidemic, but in dealing with future drug crises as well, Keith Humphreys, a Stanford University drug policy expert, said. A robust treatment system could have mitigated the damage from increasing supplies of painkillers, heroin, and fentanyl, but the United States has never had such a system. Treatment remains inaccessible for many. Sean Blake's parents, Kim and Tim, drained savings and retirement accounts and college funds to pay for treatment. Like the Blakes, many families spend thousands of dollars to try to get loved ones into care. Health insurers often refuse to pay for treatment. Legal requirements for insurance coverage are poorly enforced. When treatment is available, it's often of low quality. The Blakes frequently found that providers were ill-equipped and overwhelmed. Some seem to offer no evidence-based care at all. Across the country, most facilities don't offer effective medications. Instead, they often focus on unproven approaches like wilderness or equine therapy. Some are just scams. One called the Florida Shuffle has in recent years sent patients from facility to facility without offering real treatment, taking advantage of people desperate for help. Beyond treatment, the United States lagged behind other countries in approaches like needle exchanges that focus on keeping people alive, ideally until they're ready to stop using drugs. The country also could do more to prevent drug use and address root causes of addiction, a recent report from Stanford University and The Lancet found. The solutions are costly. A plan that President Biden released on the campaign trail, which experts praised, would cost $125 billion over 10 years. That's far more than Congress has committed to the crisis. Lawmakers haven't taken up Biden's plan, and the White House hasn't pushed for it, so far embracing smaller steps. But inaction carries a price, too. Overdose deaths cost the economy $1 trillion a year in health expenses, reduced productivity, and other losses, a new government report concluded, equivalent to nearly half of America's economic growth last year. The story was a rising death toll. Overdoses are increasing at a troubling rate, appeared in the New York Times February 13th of this year. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and I have really been looking forward to this conversation. Let me introduce my guest, Krista Rowe. Originally from Arlington, Texas, Krista Rowe is an independent filmmaker, producer, director, and actress. She produced three seasons of the reality road trip cooking show American Food Battle with Helsinki-based Mogul Media for the AWE Network and National Geographic Channel. She also produced Amanda and the Players, a hockey reality series for Mogul Media. 
She works as a commercial television and film actress in Canada. Her first documentary film, Promise House, Heather's Story, was selected for an award of merit at the Impact Doc Awards, and she was named Best Canadian Female Filmmaker at the Toronto International Women's Film Festival. She holds a bachelor's degree in theater arts from Texas Christian University and a master's in international education from New York University and is the founder of 3LG Productions. She lives in Toronto with her husband, three daughters, and Peggy, the schnoodle dog, who we might even see at some point during this conversation. Krista Rowe, welcome to COVID Calls. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. Sure. Um, I'm in Toronto. Um, Toronto has been locked down during COVID over the past two years, more than any other city in North America, as you may know. So um, it's been, it's definitely been a challenging couple of years here, especially I have, you know, three daughters. They're all teen and preteen age, 15, 13, and 11. So it's been a difficult time for everyone to be home and at those you know, ages where your friends and your social interactions are the most critical and important things in your life. Having that taken away, I think has been really developmentally stunting for them in many ways, but um, things are looking up. Uh, regulations are, uh, you know, relaxing and we're hopefully on the on the road to get back to normal. We're nowhere near what things are like in the States. Um, we still have a very strict mask mandate. Um, you know, but we are like uh, getting back to being able to eat in restaurants and social gatherings and things like that. So that's kind and of do the schools. Do the schools have a consistent set of policies or would you find yourself sort of like constantly trying to keep up with, you know, we're, we're back, we're not back, we're modified hours, things like that? Right. Well, I mean, I, I can only speak for, you know, in Toronto. Um, so the Toronto District School Board, the TDSB, uh, has some blanket policies as far as like mask mandates. Um, vaccine mandates are left to each individual school. The school that my daughters go to, they go to an all-girls school and they have a vaccine mandate. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, I mean, all the schools basically always follow the same procedures in the event of going virtual or being in person. So my kids, my girls went virtual in March of 2020. They in Toronto, we have what's called March break, spring break in the U.S., uh, they got out for March break in March of 2020, and they did not go back at all for the entire school year. They did go back in September, um, and they lasted in person until they broke for the winter holiday in December. Then they were out until mid-February. They went back for about a month. And then by the Easter break, they were out again, virtual for the rest of the year. I wonder about Texas during this time, too. You and I are going to talk full disclosure. You know, I went to high school together. We know a lot of people in common. Yes. And, um, We've known each other for over 30 years. <laughs> and and happy to say that. And But it's been hard for me sometimes to take the news coming out of Texas. I mean, I'm in South Korea. You're in Canada. These are both countries that have managed the pandemic in in what you might describe as pretty aggressive ways. And then to watch what's been going on back home has been hard for me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, and it's frustrating for my children too, because 
my kids are friends with a lot of our friends' kids and they'll text or, you know, Snapchat or whatever it is. And they're back in school. And my kids feel like that's really unfair because they wanted, you know, to go back to school. But then, you know, their COVID rates were outrageous. And it's a huge push-pull as a parent. You know, you want them to go to school, but you don't want them to obviously get sick. Um, So... I've been asking guests to share a memory of the pandemic. It's the impossible question because of the so so many things that we've been through and so many phases of this. But do you have something that really stands in for you for this time? Well, my pandemic experience was further complicated by the fact that I was also managing my mother's Alzheimer's disease during this time. And when the pandemic started, my parents were um, living in Texas, still in their own home. And my mother was sort of at a critical um, phase in her disease where she was getting much worse. And the need for help was becoming, you know, more on a daily basis. Um, And that wasn't something that they really felt, or my father really felt comfortable with at the beginning of the pandemic, because, you know, having healthcare workers into the house, obviously the rates of COVID in Texas were just through the roof. They're both elderly. And so there was a lot of fear and my mother was getting sicker and sicker and it was becoming a really untenable situation. The border was closed. I couldn't get home to them. Um, it was a really complicated situation. So we ended up in August um, bringing my parents up to Toronto. We had to get an attorney, uh, an immigration attorney that got them what's called um, a family reunification visa. And they were able to come up to Toronto and uh, I ended up finding a small rental house that is near where we lived and we got them moved into there and we got seven days a week care for my mother. But that was um, a really, really complicated time. And we finally kind of got things settled in that situation. And then as my mom proceeded to get worse and worse, that became untenable. And so then we had to move her into a nursing home, a nursing facility here in Toronto. And that was about a year ago. It was actually on April 7th because I remember that so distinctly because the day we moved my mother into the nursing home, my youngest daughter, we found out had COVID. So that was obviously, this was, I had had at that point one vaccine uh, because Canada was quite late getting the vaccine and there was vaccine shortage and they were doing vaccines at, you know, 16 week intervals for Pfizer rather than the three week interval. So I had had one. Uh, My other two daughters were obviously not vaccinated at the time. We had just moved my mother into a nursing home. My father also had only had one vaccine. It was a little bit of a panic time. Um, Fortunately, she's 11. She wasn't sick, um, but she did have to spend 10 days in the guest room alone. So that was also um, really difficult. And at first she was scared. Obviously, we were all scared. Um, But then after 72 hours, then she was bored and then she was naughty. 
And then she started to enjoy it a little bit, I think, having me, you know, she would text me, I need a snack. I would like some strawberries, but please make sure you cut the tops, you know. Like, <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's for me, you know, in addition to just, oh, my gosh, you know at times just feeling like I was losing my mind and, you know, you know, researching how to freeze eggs because we thought, Oh, we were all going to, you know, not have enough food and, um, you know, wiping down the groceries. And we had the segregated areas of our basement where we would bring the groceries in and they would, everything that didn't have to be refrigerated would stay in quarantine in the basement for two days. And anything that had to immediately come up to the kitchen to be refrigerated had to be, you know, Lysol wiped and we're doing the same thing that everybody else was doing around the world. But um, yeah, it was definitely complicated by my mom's dementia and Alzheimer's. And that was, uh, you know, I mean, obviously very complicated because also she doesn't understand what's going on. She doesn't understand that we're in a pandemic and so that was, that was, uh, yeah, I would say that was my biggest challenge. That's definitely a COVID memory. Well, I mean, just just with what you just described, you're like actively managing, keeping track of the health status of seven people, if you include your parents and your family, mm-hmm. then that's, and then layer in two moves across international boundaries. I mean, it's a lot, Chris. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, a, it was a time in my life that I do not uh, ever want to repeat. <laughs> Well, um, I'm glad you got them there. It's safer for them there, no doubt. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And, you know, now that things are smoothed out, you know, obviously my mom is a different story, but now my father, he he is living in a house that is four doors down from ours. And so in many ways, I mean, how many times in your life for you know, is your grandfather going to live four doors down? And, you know, I mean, he's actually been really helpful at, at the time in my life for my kids' needs, you know, for a babysitter, all they need is someone with a driver's license and who's willing and he has that and he's willing. So um, yeah, in that way, you know, he's, it's helpful and it's, it's, I think it's good for him. Um, he's very useful. So just remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking today to filmmaker Krista Rowe and um, catching up on her life and the pandemic situation in Canada. And let's turn to talking about this film that you've made. It's an extraordinary film. Everyone should see this film when it gets into wider, excuse me, wider release, Promise House, Heather's story. And I'm going to show the trailer for it here in a moment. But I mean, let's just start with this. Who's it about and why did you make this film? Sure. So um, growing up in Texas, uh, my closest friend through high school was a woman named Heather Clampett. And, uh, you know, we had one of those very 
best friend, girlfriend, high school relationships that is very intense. You know, people of a certain generation, you know, understand, I guess anyone understands that kind of intense friendship. When you're in high school, you share a locker, you meet up between each class, you go to school together, you do extracurriculars together, you go home, you get on the phone, you talk for three hours about, you know, what boy talked to you in between classes and what you're going to wear to school the next day. Um, so that was Heather for me. Um, and then after school, you know, we both went off to college, university. Uh, she has a master's degree uh, in English. She was brilliant. And through um, sort of an unfortunate turn of events and certainly some family history and uh, genetics, Heather suffered from a lot of mental illness, uh, depression, anxiety, um, and then it became compounded with uh, prescription drug abuse, uh, which became, you know, sort of this snowball effect. And uh, anyways, we reconnected. Um, she had kind of fallen off the grid, if you will. And we reconnected. And at that time, I was very interested in trying my hand at producing and directing my own documentary film. I'd worked on some others and in some reality TV. And I thought, you know, this is a, this is a, this is a great story. You know, we need to share your story. And, you know, I kind of pitched her the idea and she came on board with it. And we had this idea that we would tell her story and um, then you know, she was in recovery and the idea was that we would kind of have this happy ending and that she would be able to use this film and we would use this film for education. And, um, you know, we, we talked a lot of big things that she could go to schools and, you know, we would show the film and then she could do question and answer and she would help other people, um, you know, that were maybe suffering from myriad of mental illnesses or drug addiction, uh, and that was sort of how we envisioned the project ending. It did not end that way. Um, you know, uh, I guess it's not, you know, uh, untoward to say, unfortunately, uh, Heather relapsed. Uh, she became quite sick again and uh, she ended up, she died by suicide three years ago. So that, uh, obviously changed the trajectory of the project for me, but I finished the film and uh, sort of as a way to honor her. And um, so that's kind of where we're at now. It was a very long project. Uh, you know, we shot it over two years. Then it took, you know, almost four years in editing because my family moved from, yeah. you know, the U S to Canada. Then throw in a global pandemic and, you know, three children that were small at the beginning of the project and are now into their teen years. So, um, yeah, it was a very, a very long project, but, uh, it's finished. Well, why, now. <laughs> why don't I, yeah. And, and why don't I show, um, the trailer and then we can talk about some of the, some of the issues that are, that are raised in it, because you didn't make the film 
I mean, this project, as you said, was started before COVID, before we knew anything about COVID. Oh, but yeah. so many of the issues here that are raised, and like the New York Times story I read at the top of the program, these are issues which have been compounded by by COVID. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, it, it was relevant before, and now, I mean, all of the problems that you were just describing that Heather went through have been made even much worse in the last in the last two years. So let me just bring up the. Um, let me just bring up the clip here and we'll watch that and then we'll and then we'll talk some more about it. Bear with me one second here. Time to help me sleep. He had me on Oxycontin again and Oxycodone and um, Valium and muscle relaxers and Ambien and all sorts of stuff. I can't, I can't remember all the medications that I take. I find it amazing that somebody who has ingested the number of drugs she has, and I mean prescription legal drugs over, let's say, the last 10 years, that she can make complete sentences. Who is actually mentally ill versus who are the selfish drug addicts that are always victims and unaccountable for anything that we're just looking to perhaps get on government benefits or something. had my arm multiple times with like a mirror I found that I hid. Um... I swallowed a battery. All I want to do is live. Yeah. Put a mirror on the wall, taped his driver's license to his chest, uh, wrapped a comforter around him, and, uh, you know, I guess put the shotgun in his mouth and, and, uh, and uh, you know, pulled the trigger. So one of the things about the, so this is the trailer for Promise House, Heather's story, the new film that was uh, directed, produced by Krista Rowe, my guest today. And um, of course I knew Heather and knew all the places that you show in this film. So it's hard to watch. It's powerfully, the images are really powerful. But I wanted to ask you about the place that she lived through much of, of the, um, you know, much of the story that you're telling here, she was living in and out of, I guess you call them boarding houses. Yeah. So um, I was a little confused about that at first. Um, you know, what exactly is a boarding home? And uh, it's not because I think a lot of people, and I thought too, that it was sort of a transitional housing that is, um, Sometimes and, and oftentimes, I think after people are released from some sort of correctional facility, you know, uh, prison or jail, 
And it's, it's, it's not that it's not a halfway house either. A boarding home in Texas, it's, it's mandated, it's regulated by the state of Texas. And people that become boarding home owners, they have to get licensed. There's a lot of abuse in the system, um, as is touched on in the movie a little bit. But the particular boarding house that Heather lived in, um, most of the residents there claimed uh, that it was it was a good place to live. Um, there was a lot of issues, obviously, um, both interpersonal and, uh, you know, with the woman who owned this particular boarding home. And then, you know, there was some hygiene issues, bed bugs, um, things like that. But for the most part, the women that lived there were treated with respect. It was all women that lived at this particular home. And they were mostly uh, women who were suffering from mental illness and, um, you know, and or drug addiction, both. Um, and, you know, uh, it was an interesting experience to be there and to film there and to spend the amount of time there that I did because there was a lot of, of love between the women. They cared about each other. Um, you know, they took care of one another and certainly, um, you know, it, it showed that these issues cross all racial and ethnic and socioeconomic even really, boundaries. Um, you know, we think a, a lot of these as, as places that people, you know, who, who live or are raised in poverty end up. And, and that certainly was not the case for Heather. Um, you know, if there was any, if there's any stereotype about the type of person who might end up here, she debunks that stereotype, you know, raised in upper middle-class suburban neighborhood and, um, you know, with all the, the privilege that we enjoyed in that and, um, you know, very well educated, well-spoken, um, beautiful, uh, you know, I mean, all of the things that we are, we are told give us the advantage and that society does give us the advantage because of she had, and yet, you know, it couldn't, it couldn't save her from, you know, powerful opioids and, mental illness there's a scene in there where the manager of promise house uh who i guess you got pretty close with too because there's a real rapport i mean she she really talks i mean she really explains the situation in a way and and you go you use the convention of going back and forth between her and then experts and i like the experts but i kept i was like where where is she again? Yeah, Bring she's her compelling. Yeah, she's very yeah. compelling. What's her, what's her name again? Her name is, uh, well, they all called her Miss Tammy. Her name is Tammy, Tammy I'm Neal. Like, I'm yeah. like, I want Miss Tammy back on screen because yeah. I was really riveted when she was talking. There's a scene where she shows you the 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 drugs. Oh, my God. I know, right? Bags. And, and that, bags of drugs. Bags full yeah. of prescription medication. And you go through and there's a part, I don't give too much away the film, but there's a part in which the the people who are living there talk to you very openly about the drugs they're on mm -hmm. um, prescribed drugs. Every one of them. And, and you, at that point in the film, I kind of had to stop myself. I was like, is this a film about mental illness or is this a film about drug addiction in America? And it's, I mean, I, I ask you that question, but I, it's, it's yes. I mean, I, I it became indistinguishable to me yeah. how the story of Heather and the women that she's there with, 
it, it's, it's a cycle yeah. of mental health and the problem of getting mental health treatment and, and drug addiction from prescribed, from prescribed drugs and opioids, but well beyond that. I mean, many other kinds of mood stabilizers and, and heart medications and all sorts of things oh, yeah. that is pointed out in the film. We might know what they do individually, but compounded and in quantity over duration of time. I just felt like you were showing us something these people are going through an experiment almost of sorts. Yeah. 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 I mean, Heather even says that at one point, she says that her brain feels like an apothecary shop yeah. and it's witchcraft trying yeah. to figure out, um, you know, how to deal with, you know, these medications. And then, as you said, the side effects from the medications and then the medications that are prescribed to deal with the side effects from the first medication, it is, it's, uh, it's like this horrific snowball effect. How do you think Heather would have done? So she died before the pandemic started about a year, mm -hmm. almost exactly since, um, since it you know, really kicked off in the United States. And this has been a terrible time for people dealing with, both mental health challenges and drug addiction in the United States. How do you think she would have coped with it? Oh God, that is such a good question. You know, and part of me says, you know, there's no way she would have survived. Um, you know, you take into account, um, you know, every risk factor, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, congregate living settings, um, you know, um, poor health, obesity, all of these things that were these huge risk factors. But interestingly enough, I actually talked to Miss Tammy not too long ago, maybe about really? three weeks ago. Really? And with the exception of Marcia, uh, who is one of the women that you do see in the trailer, um, they all are still alive. They all survived the pandemic. And I don't know. And then, so you think, well, maybe because they did live very isolated mm -hmm. lifestyle, you know, I mean, they were sort of, I'm assuming they probably just formed their own bubble and never left because they weren't really leaving much beforehand other than to go to doctor's appointments because, you know, I mean, they lived in South Dallas and none of them had cars. So anybody who's at all familiar with that part of the country, if you don't have a car, you're not really doing much of anything, you know? And most everyone was living on disability. Um, there was nobody living at the house that was leaving daily to go to work in any capacity. So, you know, it's an interesting question um, because they were so isolated before the pandemic. So it's, it's hard to know. Would it, you know, have just been one other thing that was happening outside the walls of the Promise House that they were watching on the news? You know, how how would it have affected them? But, um, you know, I mean, I don't know. That's a it's a great question. And I don't know. And, and you know, because Heather also, with me at least, you know, our relationship would sort of go in and out depending on how she was doing um, mentally. And, um, you know, so we would have periods of time where we would, um, you know, text and, you know, talk daily, you know, sometimes 
you know, like a text thread that would go on all day. And then, you know, I wouldn't hear from her for three or four weeks. And, you know, I'd reach out and not get anything back. And then she'd sort of come back and she'd be like, well, I've been sick or, you know, I was in the hospital and this and that. So, you know, it could have gone either way. It could have been a time that she reached out and been very close or, you know, a, a withdrawal from communication. One of the things that I loved about Heather is that um, she was a real writer and she processed the world through words and she kept journals, voluminous journals, and she made mixtapes and people have to be Gen X or older maybe to know what what that is, but she was a great creator of mixtapes. And so her life, she narrated her life and it had a soundtrack. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And. And I wanted to ask you about that in terms of making this film about your friend. Yeah. And and I, I'm asking this for a reason because we are living in a period of time where we have n- never seen so much loss in such a short period of time. So many people that we've had to say goodbye to. And this is people who have died of COVID. Or this is people who have died of other things in the midst of COVID, deferred yeah. treatment, or just they just passed away and COVID was the context. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, here in this case, you had you took the opportunity to tell to tell her life story in a powerful way. But to do it, you had to you had to. There's discontinuities, as you just said, you can't tell the whole story. You have photographs you're putting together. I mean, I guess I'm asking you to give up your secrets, how you made this film. But I, but I, I mean, it's like, how do you put together a narrative of a person with so much complexity? in her life in the in the midst of this sort of national crisis of mental health and drug addiction so when you went to start to stitch it together as a narrative how did you how did you think about that how did you start that well you know it's interesting cuz you said when you were watching it you were like what is this film about is this about drug addiction is this about and i asked myself that all the time um you know, we kind of went and we filmed over a period of two years and it was very, you know, sort of run and gun style, if you will. And, you know, we had a lot of interviews that we did with various people in Heather's life and then, you know, the other residents that live at the Promise House. And at the end of it, I mean, I probably had close to 200 hours of footage. And that was my question too. Like, what is this about? Is this, is this about the opioid crisis? Is this about mental health? Is this about the, you know, lack of, of good quality care, um, you know, medical care in the United States for mental illness? Um, You know, do I want to spin this as why don't we look at people that are suffering from depression or schizoaffective disorder in the same way as people who are suffering from, you know, cancer or diabetes, you know. Right. And um, ultimately, I guess um, I had a really good editor that helped me. (laughs) That helps a lot. Garth Smith, who was amazing. But, um, and he, we sat down and we talked, I mean, for hours about this. And we finally decided that the best way that we could distill this down was to tell it as one woman's story. And to try and make it as simple as possible and 
let it just be her story. And, um, and when we start, first started editing it, um, you know, Heather was, was still with us. And so, you know, I would even talk with her about some of the decisions that we were making about, you know, and she was, as you said, she was a prolific writer. She was a brilliant woman. And, you know, I mean, she wrote, well, you know, she left all the instructions for her funeral of how that was supposed to go. And, you know, when she asked that I deliver her eulogy, she instructed me to make it funny, you know? And um, so I do feel like she had a voice in this and the music, the original music is by, you know, Society of Broken Souls, who is a friend of ours and and actually, you know, an ex relationship of Heather's and still a friend of Heather's for her whole life. Um, So, you know, in that way, it felt a little bit like, like a family effort to, to put this together, to honor her. I think she would have been happy with the music. As you said, music was super uh, important. She did have a soundtrack to her life for sure. So I hope, I hope I did a good job of honoring her in that way. Um, she did when we were working on it, she made one request of me. She said, uh, if we have to narrate this story to move it along, she said, you have to narrate it. Um, which is why the movie doesn't have narration. You didn't want to do that. I didn't because I felt like if I narrated it, it would be somehow my retelling of her story. And I wanted it to be her telling her story. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, maybe in hindsight, we could have, you know, stitched the narrative together in a better flow if there had been narration, but, um, no, I don't think it needs it. I mean, and you give her a lot of, she does narrate it. I mean, her Mm -hmm. voice comes through and the voice of her brother and her aunt and, and in a, it's a, it's a powerful document about loss. And I and I think, you know, when I was talking before, it's about these many things. I mean, that's to me a huge strength of this, because if you had said, you know, this is a film about, about mental illness or this is a film about drug addiction and we're going to have films like this that are going to be about COVID. Yeah, I think they do a disservice to the to the density of human emotion and complication that's involved in this. So even just the way her brother and I wanted to ask you about her brother's role in this. His tone of voice changes at various moments throughout the film, too. I mean, we see him going through something here. I mean, his both of his parents have died. His father's died by suicide. His mother's died by drug overdose. Yeah. And his sister has died as well. And he's he does a good job, I think, trying in some ways to like give some context for all of it. Yeah. But I can just, I mean, it's incredibly hard to, that part for me was the hardest part to watch, him yeah. trying to make sense of that. But that yeah. voice and the tone of the voice is, again, I mean, I think that's something we have grappled with a lot in these last two years, too. Just like we haven't heard, we can't hear from COVID victims, so we have to hear from their families and their caregivers. Yeah. And it's yeah. hard to listen to. Yeah. Well, and, you know, all these things are it's it's so the the emotions are so complex of loving someone but being so angry with them and you know wanting them to to get better and wanting them to you know get their act together and then 
feeling for them when they can't, but then being angry with them. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to, to someone today, you know, about my mother having Alzheimer's disease and it's the same thing, you know, it's, it's so complicated. And then, you know, you want them to, to be who they were, but they're not. And it's, it's upsetting and frustrating and it makes you angry and then it makes you guilty. And, you know, but I mean, that's, I guess that's being human, right? That's very complex emotions. You mentioned the music and I wanted to take a moment to linger on that. Uh, this, because uh, some of the music was, is by, I guess all of it is by mm -hmm. the band Society of Broken Souls. Mm -hmm. um, and as you mentioned, the songwriter is somebody that we knew growing up. He's a tremendously gifted songwriter and, and performer. Um, were these songs that they had already written or were some of these, was some of this music made specifically? No, you know, um, he basically opened his entire musical over to me and said, you can choose wow. any songs that you want. And, um, you know, really he's, hard. yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, he, like you said, you know, uh, Dennis is an amazing, uh, songwriter and performer and, uh, you know, he, he lived in Texas. He doesn't live in Texas anymore, but he lived in Texas for many, many years and captures that feel, you know, which, um, is, is, is very, it's, it's, a, it's also a very sort of Texas story, you know, in, in a lot of ways. Let me ask you about that. Uh, and people who are from Texas, particularly that part of Texas will understand when you have a sequence of shots where you go from a longhorn steer and an oil derrick to a highway seemingly without end strip mall and then the suburban house, those may seem disjointed in some ways. I mean, I think that you did a great job putting it all yeah. together, but I mean, it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition of scenes, but for somebody who's from that part of Texas, it, I was home when I watched this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, like you said, for, you know, people who live here in Canada, they might be like, really? But you're absolutely right. <laughs> That's well, Derek, like yeah. backyard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Barnett shale. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, maybe actually, yeah, seeing a longhorn, you know, as you're driving down a six lane freeway at, you know, 85 miles an hour as the posted speed limit. Yeah. But it's it's also, I mean, I, I think that was a, a really important point of the film too, because a lot of this, a lot of this, the anguish, the mental health, suffering, the drug addiction, and then Heather's time in the boarding. This takes place in the home, mm -hmm. and and I wonder what you what you think about that. I mean, because it is a statement also maybe about this problem of do we have the facilities that people need? Do we have the the drug treatment facilities? Do we have the, the halfway houses, the mental health facilities? I mean, I was stunned to see the interiors of so many homes where so much suffering had taken place. And it's like, well, this is also where the treatment takes place. I, yeah. I'm surprised by that. Well, you know, it's interesting because the state of Texas is really um, one of the only states in the U.S., as I understand, and I'm not an expert uh, in mental health at all. I'm just one, you know, little documentary filmmaker that told one little story, but 
Um, Texas is really one of the only states that still actually has mental health um, hospitals, like the Texas State Mental Hospital at Terrell, which is where Heather spent two different stays, um, both of them about nine months. So she spent a lot of time at Terrell State, you know, Institute. And we were lucky enough, we actually got to go there one day and filmed a tremendous amount of footage. Um, and that's the heartbreak in documentary film. There's so much good footage, but it just doesn't fit into your narrative in right. a way that works. But, um, you know, we were able to, you know, have a comprehensive tour of Terrell. And it was one of the most exhausting days of filming of my entire life, even though we just sort of walked around. Um, you know, they let us go into one of the wards and there was, you know, patients that were living there and seeing the rooms that they were living in and, you know, sort of those plastic mattresses uh, made up with sheets that, you know, are stamped state of Texas on them. And to think that, you know, she lived there for nine months, two different times, you know, and, you know, she talked to me a lot about the dangers of that because she would say, you know, I've become institutionalized. It's hard for me to make decisions for myself. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so then you do, you go into these small boarding homes and that is where the care and the treatment, but, you know, it, I mean, there's one scene in it where one of the women who lives there, who Miss Tammy deems is, is doing good, has been um, given the job of handing out meds. Right. Um, you know, which to me was absolutely shocking because, you know, it wasn't being administered by a nurse or a medical assistant. And these are drugs you know, it's not just Seroquel or lithium. I mean, this is Tylenol 3. This is codeine that, right. you know, that another, you know, uh, resident is dispensing to their peers, you know? Sorry. That's fine. Let me, I'll, take, I'll take this moment just to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and talking today with Krista Rowe, who's the director of the new film Promise House, Heather's Story. And um, we're almost out of time. I, I wanted to get to one more question before we... So um, thank you for making this film. And for those thank of us who loved... Thank you for those of us who loved Heather, um, who love Heather, uh, this is a really powerful way to cope with that loss. So you've, you've really made something extraordinary, but I think this also, this film is going to start a lot of conversations and I think it's going to help a lot of people. And I really want people to watch it. Well, thank you. Uh, and, I hope so. and I, I think they will. And congratulations on winning the award. And I think there will be more awards to follow. And I, but this is a, this is heavy. And, and, and that's a vast understatement. And when I think of you, I think of laughter and so I wanted to sort of finish maybe just by yeah. asking you in the middle of this, and this is, again, this time that we're living through this one big concrete block of loss that we're all just dealing with right now. Where did you find humor, not in this subject material, but in, and even with Heather while dealing with it, did you find moments to laugh? Did you find things? Because when I picture you both together, I picture there's a lot of laughs. Oh. Absolutely. I mean, we had fun 
when we were doing this. Yes, the topics were heavy. The interviews were heavy. Um, Heather also, you know, she was kind of a night owl. And so this one interview that we did with her, she didn't even want to start till, you know, we started at like eight o'clock. And by the time we set up all the equipment, you know, we were talking until, you know, one, two in the morning, rolling the film, the poor cinematographer, Marco <laughs> was falling asleep behind the camera, you know, but um, yeah, we had fun. And, you know, we'd, we'd hop in the car and, you know, find Depeche Mode on, uh, you know, the, whatever, you know, serious uh, first wave station. And I mean, in many ways, you know, we'd, you know, drive around with the windows rolled down and sing along. And it was sort of like reliving a little bit of our youth, you know, but, um, you know, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, other people that I've talked about with us or I've seen it, they're like, this is the kind of work that you do because I am sort of a, you know, silly personality. And yeah, I mean, I got three kids and, you know, it just keeps things light, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh. Well, let me just remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls and um, you can usually catch COVID calls live at 7 PM Eastern time. Although these days as we're leading up to March 16th, we're doing um, kind of around the clock. So keep up by following at US of disaster and you can find out when COVID calls will be taking place. And I want to thank my guest today, Krista Rose, produced this new film, Promise House, Heather's Story. Uh, I'm I'm proud to know you. This is phenomenal. And thanks for coming on today and talking. It's great to see you. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. It was an honor to spend some time with you again. <laughs> Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.